0: Hello and welcome to the latest BICOM podcast. I'm Richard Pater, the director of BICOM. Today is Monday, the 7th of March, and I'm delighted to be joined by Ksenia Svetlova, who is the director of the Middle East program at Midvim. Midvim is the Israeli Institute for Regional Foreign Policies. Before joining Midvim, Ksenia was a member of Knesset with the Labour Party, and before that, she had a distinguished career working on Russian language TV covering a range of Middle East issues. Um, Ksenia, welcome to the Bicom podcast.
1: Thank you, Richard. Uh, great to be here.
0: Um, I wonder if we could start just for some of our audience that may not be familiar with you. Just if you can give us a little bit more details about your uh, your your background and career, and uh, kind of how you how you entered the uh, the Knesset and uh, and your and, and your kind of your your expertise and understanding in the Middle East.
1: Sure, so um, my family and I came from Moscow with a big wave of immigration from former Soviet Union in 1991. Uh, it was a very special time for that country uh, and I followed the developments and uh, uh, what was still the USSR in the late 80s as a teenager, uh, the Perestroika, the Glasnost and uh, all of the, uh, change uh, that just swept completely through the Eastern Europe. Uh, and exactly when this country dissolved, our family decided to leave to Israel. So uh, in Israel, uh, I focused on Middle Eastern studies. Uh, I speak Arabic uh, as well as Russian, uh, Hebrew and, uh, and English. And um, after my studies, I worked for some time for almost 13 years as a correspondent and analyst for Arab affairs on Israeli Russian language television, also contributing to other newspapers such as the Jerusalem Post, uh, BBC in Russian and others. Um, in 2015, I was elected uh, within the frame of the Zionist uh, Union faction uh, that comprised Labour and hatnoah party led by Tzipi Livni. Uh, so I was elected to the Knesset uh, and I was a member of the 20th Knesset between 2015, 2019 and Absorption Committee, uh, as well as uh, Foreign Affairs and Defense. Uh, For the last three years, I uh, have the privilege uh, to be the Director of Israel Middle Eastern Program uh, in Mitvim, and also a Fellow at the Institute for uh, Strategy and Policy at Reichman University, where I also teach a course uh, on Arabic newspapers. Um, I led a program for the last uh, two, two and a half years in uh, Reichman. Uh, that focused on Russia in the Middle East. Uh, so there comes the uh, on, uh, Russia uh, the Russian regime, uh, its uh, strategies, uh, its uh, propaganda activities, uh, and so on. Uh, and now, uh, when the war broke uh, with the, between Russia and Ukraine, uh, I'm writing a lot uh, about um, what had happened not only in the front line between uh, Ukraine and Russia, but what had happened actually in Russia how the country got from the beginning of the uh, 90s, end of 80s from the perestroika time, when it was clear that the Iron Curtain is no longer there and that the country is choosing the democratic path, how difficult it might seem. And now it ended uh, at where we are today, country that is launching a ground invasion against another country, sovereign country, spreading lies and propaganda uh, against it and uh, uh, lying to the whole world uh, and closing the iron curtain again uh, by, right now by, by its own choosing.
0: So this is fascinating and obviously this is why we're delighted to have the, to have you as our, as our guest today. So I'd love to get into some of those details. Perhaps we could start with just as you mentioned kind of what's your current assessment kind of uh, of, of the way that the, the, the war is being um, reported and, the re- and, and responses reactions inside Russia.
1: Well, uh, you know, it, uh, it's a very wide question because it depends on uh, how the war is reported where, you know. If you focus on uh, the Russian media, then uh, you see our brave troops uh, that are liberating the country from the evil uh, Nazi regime. Uh, they are welcoming, welcoming our brave soldiers with flowers. Uh, and uh, they're so happy that uh, they finally came to liberate and save them. Uh, there are no casualties, no Ukrainian casualties whatsoever. The Minister of Defense of Russia doesn't recognize that there are any. Um, and um, you see the propaganda uh, at its best, you know, I think this war was carefully prepared for, for the last eight years on the side of propaganda. You know, military took uh, last six years, six months or so. Uh, but, um, but for propaganda, they worked very efficiently for the last eight years, deliberately spreading lies about Ukraine, but also about the collective West, uh, and constructing the narrative of "it's us, the Russian, against the Nazis, all over again." And World War II was never over; was never finished. Uh, and you know, it was incredible as a Russian speaker to see this propaganda, to watch it sometimes, and it was horrendous. You know, and uh, I think nobody understood. Uh, there are actually a few, few people that were very uh, intelligent and uh, knew uh, Putin's regime well enough to understand where it was going. But I think the majority still didn't think that uh, the propaganda can actually translate into actions. Now, this is exactly what we say.
0: And in terms of kind of the uh, the Russian people's response I mean are they, are they are they are they bought by the are they sold by this propaganda I mean have we've seen some scenes at least on Israeli media and in the West about uh, some very brave Russians demonstrating against the war what's your sense if you can of kind of of Russian uh, public opinion
1: you know I think that there are three layers basically that you can uh, differentiate between uh, there is the intelligentsia the Uh, political uh, activists, the journalists, uh, the people of art, uh, people who of uh, upper middle class perhaps, who were exposed to the West, who were traveling extensively, uh, who could tell right from wrong when they saw this propaganda and they understood that it's a lie because they knew otherwise, they knew better. And these are the people who we see every time, not only now, but also when uh, Navalny was poisoned and uh, before you know when the russian position was crushed and when memorial organization that commemorated the victims of the soviet regime uh, was uh, uh, closed okay so we saw them every time and i think that uh, we also see them now um, but the problem is that uh, there is two other layers uh, there is a very wide layer of the uh, of russians who not necessarily have foreign passports this is first uh, they do not travel abroad some of them cannot travel abroad because their families serve in their defense forces and as such uh, they are basically forbidden from forbidden from traveling abroad this is something that is going on for the last uh, you know um, few years maybe at least seven eight nine years or so um they uh, their primarily a source of information is russian television uh you know sometimes sometimes you're also speaking about elder people uh, who come home and they watch TV and this is the only narrative that they hear. Um, and uh, you know regarding I think this is it's, it's massive. Uh, I cannot estimate how large is this layer, but probably around 50 60 percent of those who right. actually do vote for Putin every time. And the last layer it's uh, those who benefit from all of this uh, see, all of this system at least benefited until now. They are uh, wealthier than average. Uh, some of them, they have houses in Nice and Cannes, uh, and uh, in uh, Majorca, and uh, all over Britain, of course. Uh, and um, you know, these these people, I think, they were widely they were shocked uh, by Putin's intention to begin a real war that would uh, result in uh, horrible sanction, sanctions against the regime and against them. Uh, And uh, I think they are the only ones who are right now realizing something new, you know, that, uh, you know, this regime is also damaging for them personally. Okay, so we do not see them, of course, protesting, but perhaps they're protesting from within and fuming from within, which, you know, you might or might not uh, bring to some kind of change eventually in Russia.
0: Fascinating. What, what do you make of the uh, of the sanctions so far? I mean, what, what sort of effects are they having? Do you think that's enough leverage to uh, to deter Putin? Um,
1: I think, um, you know, uh, this is unprecedented because uh, we never experienced uh, in the global system uh, such wide sanctions that are being implicated against a country that is essentially a part of global economy, you know, because neither Libya in the 80s neither Iran even, you know, was so integrated, uh, so well integrated into the global system. And also because we are right now in the 2022, and 1985, uh, you know, 87 after Lockerbie uh, and so on. Uh, Russia is not North Korea, perhaps it will end like North Korea, but right now it's not. And um, uh, I think that uh, it's still early to say, you know, how exactly the sanctions will, uh, influence uh, because it's a long-term thing um, and right now I think there is this kind of bravery on behalf of the authorities and also part of the citizens who say you know the people from the west they are leaving so who needs them anyway uh, and uh, you know uh, I think uh, they still not understand they do not comprehend how will they hurt the average citizens because you know there is the medical equipment the majority, the most of the equipment is not being produced in Russia. Neither the medicine, you know, uh, there will be no spare parts for automobiles. Uh, and if they will be on the black market, they will be very expensive, just uh, like it was in the eighties when I grew up. You could find most of the things, most of the commodities were available, available uh, in the black market, uh, but, uh, but they were very expensive. They were not uh, available to everybody. So people will find out eventually, yes? It will might mm. make them even more, you know, against the West in the beginning, but in the long term, perhaps, uh, you know, there will be change.
0: Thank you for that. If we can turn our attention to kind of to to, to Israel-related issues, obviously, also with our eyes on the same uh, the same war. Um, what was your reaction when you heard that uh, Prime Minister Bennett had travelled in secret to visit uh, um, President Putin on Saturday night? Yes,
1: I was surprised, uh, not by the fact that uh, Bennett is interested in, uh, um, you know, mediating uh, between uh, the sides. Um, He was, first of all, approached by uh, Vladimir Zelensky, uh, who asked him twice, you know, perhaps uh, Israel could have some leverage and the ability to to negotiate and to mediate. Uh, Also, I think the experts, many Israeli experts said that, uh, specifically, Russia—not uh, Russia, but uh, specifically Israel and Turkey, uh, countries who have good relations, uh, uh, decent relations with both parties—they are more suitable. They are more suitable to do this than uh, perhaps the leaders of uh, France or Germany or United States, who are perceived uh, by uh, Russians as. Uh, part of the conflict, okay? So Israel is not part of the conflict. Uh, Turkey is not so much part of the conflict, okay? So uh, this was not uh, unreasonable for for him to offer, uh, you know, his mediation. But for him to travel there, you know, I wondered uh, how much um, is there um, coordination between Jerusalem and Washington? I think this is the key question. Because if this uh, move was not fully coordinated and approved also, uh, by uh, the Americans, I think Israel might find itself in trouble, uh, as uh, because it will be perceived as a party that is leaning a little bit too much uh, to the Russian side.
0: Mm. I mean, if we if we take the the word of the of Israel's Prime Minister's office and the sources, they're saying that uh, the Prime Minister spoke to the National Security Advisor on Friday, and uh, they think he they had his blessing, or at least he didn't uh, he didn't object. Um, but uh, but just looking at his at these at these efforts, and we saw obviously what happened to uh, French President uh, Macron when he visited just before the fighting uh, started. Um, how do you rate um, Prime Minister Bennett's success as a mediator?
1: You know, there will be a success if there will be a ceasefire uh, that will mm. be long-lasting, or there will be the end of incursion. You know, so this will be the success. You know, mm-hmm. because uh, uh, for now it's still too early to talk about this. I think it's a dangerous move he might win. Uh, there is slight chance, but still, you know, I think that uh, uh, if he thought that uh, he, there is a slight chance that he will succeed, then of course he had to do it. Uh, but on the other side, if he will fail, uh, well, you know, I think um, potentially there, there could be some damaging uh, potential for uh, his relations with the White House. Uh, and again, it depends on what was there in the, in the room uh, what words were said what Bennett said what Putin said we know nothing about it you know so it's yeah. really really hard to make something out of it without knowing almost no details about uh, uh you know uh, what kind of content was there in the in the talks
0: sure and I realize we're in the realm of uh, speculation because as you say we just don't know but it's, it's curious the timing as well but kind of Coincides with the what we think is going to be the, the close to the end of the uh, of the nuclear talks in in Vienna. How much do you think, if you, in your assessment, that they, they were connected to uh, to the same conversations that Bennett had with Putin?
1: Well, I'm sure that uh, it was something that they discussed, uh, just as well as the uh, Israeli freedom of um, operation in the Syrian skies. Uh, mm. These are original issues. I usually come, you know, to the table uh, when Russian and the Israeli leaders well, I think it's the primary concern these days, uh, you know, whether the deal will be signed, uh, what, will be, what will it include? And there is also a lot of concern that perhaps now when nobody is really watching uh, what is happening in, in Vienna, uh, perhaps uh, you know, the West uh, will be too lenient uh, in regards to Iranian demands. Uh, and uh, there is also Russia that can also influence, uh, try to influence these talks, as was reported uh, recently by Reuters, uh, in order to make use and connect uh, between the two uh, between the two issues. Uh, rather than that, I think that um, apart from the nuclear deal itself, that uh, I think many in Israel understand that it's a done deal. Uh, although now it seems like everything is open, but uh, Israel doesn't really have the ability to influence that. Uh, but there is a question of what will happen in Russian-Iranian relations in the in the future, because there is an assessment. Mm that now when Russia will be just pressed against the wall, uh, it will just sell its weapons, advanced weapons to everybody who demands them, Uh, especially if Iran will not be under sanctions. There will be no problem, you know, S-400 and other, you know, maybe even fighter jets, uh, you know, Su-35 because uh, uh, the partners of Russia in the Middle East that were hesitant before, you know, the Egyptians uh, made a deal uh, around the, the Su-35 shipment, uh, but it never progressed. And uh, in January this year, they said finally that they are not going to get it because of the American pressure. Uh, so they have to sell it to somebody, <laughs> and uh, hmm. this somebody might be Iran. You know, so this is something that Israel is very uh, concerned, and I'm sure that this is also something that might come, you know, uh, on the table uh, in this meeting.
0: Yeah, uh, thank you for that. I mean, it's very, it's very, very disturbing. I mean, what do you think of the? Uh, I mean, beyond kind of the idea that that Iran can, it will, it will increase and kind of make those make those changes to export the uh, these advanced weapons to to Iran. Um, what else would you say are the long term ramifications um, or the ramifications at the moment to uh, to the Middle East in general um, relating to this aggression? Um, so
1: when we see the uh, when we look at the aggressive uh, actions uh, of Russia in Eastern Europe and the threats that Russia is making also to other countries uh, because you know uh, today it's Ukraine but uh, potentially it's also Moldova or even the Baltics you know they do feel the threat uh, every day for the last uh, at least uh, the, since 2007 since, since his Munich speech uh, at the Munich security conference uh, they feel threatened uh, so the question is whether also in the Middle East, Russia will um, uh, promote uh, its uh, aggressive uh, image, uh, will push for more against the West. Uh, and in this game, that is essentially not between Israel and Russia, it's between the West and Russia. But uh, given the close ties uh, of Israel and the US, I think any actions of um, Russia and Syria um, that will be meant, for example, to push the Americans away, uh, or that will be designed, um, you know, to uh, secure the Syrian skies, as they promised many times before, secure the Syrian skies from whom? From uh, foreign uh, aircrafts uh, that are flying there, that are mainly Turkish uh, and Israelis, and the U.S., and the American, of course, okay? So if sa- this kind of decision will be taken, Israel will have to deal uh, with a very uncomfortable uh, Uh, situation in which uh, it has to do what it does uh, to safeguard its borders and to prevent from Iran uh, to breaching its security. Uh, At the same time, you know, it will have to deal with uh, Russia, determined Russia and uh, very uh, angry Russia, angry because of the sanctions, uh, angry because of uh, how the West misunderstood its uh, uh, um, intentions uh, and so on. So potentially, you know, the situation can change very rapidly, and it does not depend at all on what Israel will say or will not say in the current uh, context of conflict in Ukraine.
0: Senia, thank you so much for your insight today. That was really valuable. Thank you very much.